Today's podcast is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Socks and underwear used to be a boring stocking stuffer, but Mack Weldon has changed it into a top-of-the-line gift. The Mack Weldon holiday packs are not just a gift every man needs, it's the gift every man is excited to get. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. All of their products are naturally microbial, which means they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you. No questions asked. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, too. It's good for working out, going out, going on dates, whatever, everyday life. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code BSPN. Hello, and welcome to The Watch, part of the Channel 33 podcast feed. My name is Chris Ryan, and on the other line, just crawled out of the dirt in the middle of the woods, it's Andy Greenwald! Yo, how you feeling today? I'm feeling resurrected. You know how I'm feeling? How's that? Antimicrobial. <laughs> Andy, uh, we are going to talk about uh, our, our probably one of our favorite films of the year that we just both of us saw this weekend, Spotlight, which is in selected cities now. Uh, we will also be talking about the new Marvel Netflix television show, Jessica Jones. And yep. of course, we will talk about last night's rather, uh, you know, re- the revival episode of the um, of Leftovers. But first, dude, let's do in and out. These Game of Thrones teaser posters. I'm so in. Yeah. I'm so in on these. I'm so proud of our, well, let's be honest, our good friends at HBO here because they could have really screwed this up, right? Like no one, no one was buying the idea that Jon Snow was dead. Not you, not me. I didn't buy it. Certainly not Kit I refused to buy it. Or hairstylist. And today the network released its first uh, teaser images of season six and they went all in on this. Speaking of all in, the teaser image is just Jon Snow's face. Yeah. It says April. Now- should we play devil's advocate It could here? be a memorial. It could be a in-memoriam sort of image. The thing about Kit Harrington's just just delightful, tender emo face that we've missed for so long already, um, that we missed so much already, the, 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 the angle of his head suggests one of two things. It suggests he is lost in reflection. Mm-hmm. Perhaps he's, you know, choosing, he's syncing up which Cure song bestly sums up the emotion of being stabbed repeatedly in the spleen by your brothers. Yeah, he's reading House of Leaves, whatever. Or... <laughs> Or he, his dead body has been strung up on some sort of castle firmament. Right? So it's like possible. That's, possible. That's, that's also an option. But it's also possible that the deal I just entered into with a Nigerian prince is going to bring me back 30,000 euros in the next three months. <laughs> because this dude is not dead. This dude has been in Belfast filming season. This dude like, is so it. up in Belfast. Like, they can try, but it's just like, Kit Harrington is in Ireland, Northern exactly. Ireland. Exactly. It yeah. is not like you're trying to, I mean, we're going to talk about Jessica Jones in a minute, and the entire first season is based on trying to find one English guy in Manhattan. Yeah. Which, you know, I guess, <laughs> is tricky. Because English people love coming to Manhattan and sitting out in front of coffee shop in uh, Union Square. But... <laughs> Belfast is a different story, especially if it's Kit Harrington and he's got his curly locks and, you know, he's carrying around a broadsword with a wolf on the end of it, shouts to Mallory Rubin. So I'm really happy they're just being like, the season is going to be about the mystery of what happened and why he's still on the show and how that's going to come to pass. They're not playing coy. They're not pulling a Walking Dead, which is, you know, as we've learned in the last few weeks, that is not how you do a TV surprise or a TV death in this day and age. Have you been keeping up on that at all? I have been. Yeah. And I saw that they're, they, they very much like they had like an orchestrated kind of like, just kidding. He's live, you know, like kind of moment. And that, that bled him into the talking dead, which is, you know, like I, I think that it's very difficult. I and mean, we're going to talk about this with the leftovers. It's just like character deaths right now are, are such like sort of um, cloak and dagger actions because it's like, 
what are you going to do to to change how people are used to experiencing these these events on shows right right so it's like how can you how can you what are like sort of the market inefficiencies of character deaths i don't really know that there was any more there's shock or there is oh no he's back you know there's there's like we're gonna string it along about what will he or won't be he be dead it's there's there's not a lot of like options here's the bigger idea that i'll throw out there death is overrated. I agree with you. As far as like a narrative is a narrative trope on television, it's starting to get a little bit tiresome. It's overrated. It's much easier to kill a character and try to deal with the shocks and the emotional histrionics that will be the you know the after effect of that death than it is to write a creative or novel transformation for the character. Yeah, it comes from their whatever, from their journey, from their experiences, and so. I mean, we, again, we are definitely going to talk about this in regards to The Leftovers, because that is an example of a show that ostensibly killed its main character for a week, but in no way pretended that he was going to be dead for good. Right. And did something kind of interesting with its odd choice, because it set up a show where things like that can happen. Now, for Game of Thrones, like, it's not good. This is something that you and I talked about a lot when we did Watch the Thrones. It's not good storytelling to take the guy who's set up to be your one kind of hero and murder him. That's just being cruel. So I'm very happy that they're not going to string this out. There's no way they could have. It would have dominated all of their pre-press. It would have taken all the attention away from the things, the places it should have been for the show. I'm very glad that they just unveiled these billboards and it's like, let's go. And it's by the way, it's still like six months away. I know. So yeah, it's a- April. About. It's coming back in April. So speaking of juries and experiences, Andy, in or out, Adele's 25 album. Now, Juliet Littman uh, debuted her show on Friday. She, she's got another show on the Channel 33 podcast feed. You can also hear her. Sources say, obviously, the Watch Pod is on Channel 33, and he's going to have his own show coming soon. Um, but Juliet did a podcast that was largely about Adele or had a lot of Adele content. And uh, But I just wanted to see what you thought, because it's the yeah. biggest album of the year, easily. It was a, it was a great chat. Commercially. I people listen to uh, the Juliet show that she did with Bill and, and Wesley. I, I want to turn it back to you. I want to know. I, I have my thought on it, but I want to know where you are with it. I'm a single serving Adele listener. So, like, I really, really enjoy the, the single songs, but I... Uh, Across the board, like, I've never really had, like, a huge appreciation for the Great American Songbook. Like, I understand it's, like, value or whatever, but I've never been, like, oh, let me just, really, I need to think about Diane Warren and Cole Porter, you know? Like, I... First of all, you went from Diane Warren to Cole Porter. Okay, I mean, like, like... Diane Warren probably caked up more than Cole Porter. She definitely is way more dripped up and draped out than Cole Porter. There's no yeah. question. Di- Cole Porter never him. rolled on twice. No, he no never did. Never did. What kind? Of, Cole Porter's car. What you know about never, buying out the lot, Cole Porter? Cole Porter never had sports cars the way Nas liked his women. That is just a proven fact, and we are hashtag facts only on this podcast. No question. <laughs> I'm pretty into the fact that we've done two watch pods so far, and you just treated like Rogers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe the way Patty Levin's husband, Neil, was treated by paid escorts on The Leftovers. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, look, here's the thing about Adele. Great talent. Nobody's yeah. arguing that. Great singles. Great media machine, by the way. Um. I, unlike our good friend Juliet, I can, can't think of a single time when I want to listen to an Adele song. Right. You know what I mean? Or maybe once a year. And it's like, this is seasonally appropriate because it's like Thanksgiving. Like, on Thanksgiving, I like to eat an obscene amount of food, right? And feel awful afterwards, but great. <laughs> but listen, I kind of don't want to do that every you, day. Like, some days you, you listen to have someone like, like you after you're <laughs> just, just 20 times. Yeah. I just mean, it is 
it is maximalist. Yeah. What I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes you don't want to do. It's also not very fun, which is a problem for me. But I think it's good. And here's actually why I'm a little bit more in on Adele than I thought I was. Um, did you see again? Brilliant, brilliant promotional lead up to this record. Did you see the video of her performing a song live in like the Royal Albert, whatever? Or maybe it was an Abbey Road Studios. I yeah, with the with, where she's just having a little bit of banter with her backup singers beforehand. Exactly. She is a delightful she, lady. She's having some banter, and you know how I would characterize that banter? How? A little saucy. <laughs> and Juliet <laughs> talked about how, and she was right that Adele is, especially these like post twenty one Adele. Uh, the album, I guess, and age. Right. She is always, she is always just put together. She is immaculate, yeah. right? Like her makeup, her hair, her regal bearing. But unlike Taylor Swift, who is also always just completely done up, and kind of the effect is that as soon like as a- you get, you get like B roll Adele, and she's like, yeah. hello. This is what I'm saying. So I feel like Taylor, Taylor Swift does it, and she kind of looks like a feral android, yeah. right? But Adele looks glamorous, and it's great. But you kind of get the feeling that underneath it. She would definitely go down to the pub and like play the fruit machine with you and like have a couple pints. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm reading this book right now. I don't know if you read about this. It's called Animals. It's called Adele and the Fruit Machine. It's called Adele and the Fruit Machine. It's actually a novel I wrote. It's available as a Kindle single. It's, it's about the early life of Cole Porter. It's about the early life of Cole Porter um, when he invented gambling in pubs. Um, there's a book called Animals by Emma Jane Unsworth. And yeah. I'm going to, you know, we don't, we're not doing video pods at the moment, but I'm holding up this so you can see it because we're looking at each other via the hangout mechanism. And at the cover is just two young English women doing shots. Okay? Yeah. And I'm reading this novel and I kind of think it's possible to imagine Adele as one of the main characters. And one of the, the novel begins with someone waking up from a hangover so bad that they've accidentally tied themselves to their bed. And their roommate <laughs> comes in and says, here, chug this glass of Pinot Grigio and have the spaghetti I made with ketchup just to just to begin to feel normal. Just to put again. a base coat down. And um, I think that if you imagine that as either the preface or the afterword to most Adele songs, you'll enjoy them more. I like the also the just one interesting point about twenty five before we move on to last thing. Uh, I do. I, mean, I am keeping my eye on like the creepy in, creeping indiaization of like mainstream pop music production and like the presence of Ariel Rechstad and and uh, Tobias Yeso. Is I yeah. pronouncing his name right? Yeso or Yeso? I, I, I'm going to go with Jesse. Yeah, I'm going to go to Microbial. Uh, he is, um, he's on there. He wrote, um, what did he write? When we, while we were young? When we were young? I don't know. One of the songs about calling an ex on the phone? I don't know. Yeah, that was a good one. Anyway, always interesting to see like how like, you know, people who were on like Matador a couple years ago are now like writing and producing for Adele. Uh, last thing real quick, yes or no, in or out. Uh, the new trailer for the film Midnight Special, directed by Jeff Nichols, director of Mud, Shotgun Stories, Take Shelter, one of our favorites. Uh, what'd you think of this one? I thought it was super dope. Yeah, I'm I in. was all in on this. Yeah, now so it has a real, you should guys should go, should go check it out. It's Michael Shannon, Adam Driver, Kirsten Dunst. It's about like a very special like boy, maybe it's about, like special superpowers out in like Texas. Um, and like the government wants him, but his parents are trying to protect him and it kind of has like an Amblin vibe and it's, it feels like very Steven Spielberg, but I kind of, when I read about it, everything is sort of an homage to like John Carpenter's 80s stuff where it's like sci-fi, but very humanistic. It's, I think it's going to be great. Good trailer. It's nice to kind of see something like that. Here's why I like the trailer so much. And I'm kind of psyched about the movie. It's because Jeff Nichols is a young filmmaker, is a young writer and director. And instead of going to work for Fox and Brian Singer and then making an X-Men movie. He has made his own X-Men movie. Yeah. 
And we've talked a lot. We talked a lot in the previous incarnation of this pod about the pluses and minuses of people graduating from tiny indies to Jurassic Worlds, and how you know we would probably. I think at this point, even Josh Trank would have been more interested in seeing his follow-up to Chronicle that was self-made and not Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. But um, more, you know, we don't have many chances to see some of these filmmakers willing to go on their own path. There's a lot of good IP out there. There's so much fresh IP. <laughs> it's just there to be, it's just snatchable IP. Yeah. And so this essentially looks like an X-Men movie. And um, we're going to cycle back to this idea when we talk about Jessica Jones. But it's, it's, it makes me happy whenever I see something that has become overly done or overly um, just familiar, which is basically a, you know, magic kid or special powers story done with a real point of view and done a little bit to the left of the mainstream. Yeah. Um, okay, well, let's move on because we have a bunch to talk, cover in just a short amount of time today. Um, so let's talk about Spotlight. So yes. uh, Andy and I both saw this week this movie separately in Los Angeles and New York. Um, it is... Did they, wait, did they screen different versions of the film? Yeah. Like, is it did yours specific? have Apocalypse come in at the end? <laughs> Mine, well, <laughs> what would have been my version? I thought you would have had like The Rock like in a helicopter flying over the newsroom just being like, we're going to lose that one too. <laughs> Do you remember when, uh, when uh, what was the song? The uh, Corey Gun, not Corey Guns, Peter Guns and whatever, the, the Uptown Baby, the Steely Dan song, yeah. and they made like regional Uptown versions. Anthem, man. And, and I Lord Tariq, being, Lord Tariq and Peter Guns, and I just remember listening to the version when I was in college, and it was the Providence boom, version. Boom, boom. But they were like Cranston got crazy game. Yeah, like that's that's just demonstrably untrue. <laughs> like Cranston, Rhode Island does not have crazy game. <laughs> Sorry, Spotlight. Oh yeah, Spotlight. This movie. Uh, directed by Tom McCarthy, starring Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Mark Ruffalo. Uh, the 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 dynamic duo of Crudup and Tucci. Tucci. It's Tucci season. Get yeah. those statuettes out. I want this guy to get an Oscar. Tucci, aka Titty Boy. <laughs> Look, this movie is immaculate. Yeah. I don't. I don't think it serves any purpose. Certainly not a conversational purpose for a podcast. And by the way, we should say it's not open everywhere. I guess we're not going to spoil it. But by the way, if you think a movie about an investigative newspaper story that was published 13 years ago can be spoiled, just just relax. Yeah. Just go pick up a copy of a book about hungover British women and, you know, have, have some spaghetti with ketchup. Just have some spaghetti with ketchup and, and relax. Um, Listen to some Cole Porter. But well, I don't want to spoil Cole Porter for I, you, though. I'm just saying, yeah, the third act of Cole Porter is wild style. I'm just saying it doesn't help the conversation to say that this movie is essentially perfect. But I felt like the movie was essentially perfect. I don't know. It was I, yeah, I don't know how you would change and, a note tight and buttoned up and entertaining and gripping and powerful and beautifully performed and so expertly directed that you don't even notice how it's being directed. Yeah. And it was, it was a thrill. It was, it's a total pleasure. And I feel like I can say this, even though it's the only movie I've seen in fiscal 2015. <laughs> it was, uh, it's an homage. It's like a really, really loving for all the serious and dark, dark topic subject matter that's in the movie. I was so moved by the like tactile, sense of love it has for the newspaper industry and this was sort of you could look back and say one of the last gasps of physical print media you know of of, of that this industry you know that even when it, one of the things the movie is remarkable at doing is economically like letting you know about different things so it's like there's a bit about the boston phoenix and marty baron has been in miami and he's come he's come up and he's working on uh the boston globe now and there's like a rivalry with the herald and all these things are just delivered they they trust the audience they don't underestimate the intelligence of the audience these things are told to you in like a line here or there um i i just thought that 
it had the perfect mix of procedural and character study and it made me very nostalgic for it. and you know i actually joked with juliet about you know we were we were joking the other week and we were like if you could like kind of like be it 25 to 28 or, or 30 years old or grow up in a, in a you know kind of like you'd be alive in a really a different time than the one you were now but you'd be an adult at that time what would it be and you know you everybody's always just like well i would like to see the northwest passage but she was she had a really good point where she was like i would love to live in new york um right as the internet was starting but it wasn't a pervasive part of our lives so there was like some of the conveniences of the internet were available but it wasn't like this overwhelming part of our lives so when i was his editorial assistant at spin ordering the new macy gray cd on cosmo.com exactly that. yeah and that's like okay that's like a little bit more convenient than usual but you would still usually go to a record store but it's you basically this yeah and there's this this movie captures that i mean the, the to be fair chris i also ordered supreme clientele to my office <laughs> and i believe some m&ms just to see if it works so it was a successful time you had to hit that 20 dollar minimum order um <laughs> If Juliet ever wants to just do a pod where we just reminisce about late 1999. No, um, I'm glad you said the words moving because I found this movie supremely moving in surprising ways. Mm -hmm. I think that the movie is so restrained and delicate in the way that it handles its subject matter because it is a movie about reporting and it is a movie about community. Yeah. It is not specifically a movie about these atrocities that were permitted and committed um, by members of the Catholic Church, the Archdiocese in Boston, you know, over a period of many decades, um, the, the 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 limited amount of um, testimony and um, on the record commentary from victims is very very moving and upsetting. Yes, but what's truly moving is journalism being journalismed. Yeah, you know, I, I could not believe how sweeping and how inspiring that part was. And you know, I, we don't—I don't mean this because we work primarily on the web. But you and I—I I don't think we've ever called ourselves journalists. We were like, we're certainly not investigative journalists. Bloggers. Yeah. We never did yeah, yeah. that thing. Um, but when you think about what can be done by that thing, because so much of what the characters do, and you know, it, the character that Ruffalo plays, and he's so good, is a type that we've seen in other movies, you know, is a type, but it's also a personality type that is real and mm -hmm. is necessary for that type of work. Yeah, and I love how they don't really get into Mark Ruffalo's family life. It's just allusions to what may or may not have happened in his childhood or in his marriage and stuff like that. It's just so good. He, he's just a bulldog. And what he's doing is taking stories that have existed, that people have known, yeah. paperwork that has been filed or buried. It's all there. But it just took, in this case, four or five people putting the pieces together. And God, it's amazing to see what a movie can accomplish in just two hours when it's sets its mind to it. It's right? also amazing and, to see like a bunch of men in like block color Van Heusen shirts. Let's talk <laughs> about the Dockers game. These have been, now the clothes of this movie has actually become like kind of a, a thing that people are talking about because partly because of Rachel McAdams like very very specific like billowy chambray blouses. And she plays Sasha Pfeiffer, who is now a, an NPR host, I think, in Boston, All Things Considered host. It, it, it's super fun to imagine that this is uh, – Wesley said this. I agree with him that he thought this was McAdams' best on-screen performance. Oh, easily, yeah. But it's really fun to imagine that underneath those billowy pantsuits are Annie Bezzarini's collection of knives. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, just in case yeah. she, could still, she could still cut a dude. Um, but – there's a scene early in the movie when Michael Keaton, we haven't even mentioned really, Michael Keaton, I love this performance more than the Birdman performance. So now we're like in, in 94 Travolta zone with Keaton where he's just going to be in the best movie of every year? 
that's the best zone for an actor to be in. I honestly. guess so. Yeah. The thing about Birdman is that it is obviously super showy, and there are very few actors that could have pulled that off, and it was in many ways written for specifically him. But in, to my mind, the real measure of an actor's ability or a star's charisma is what they can do with something that is written, you know. You could have been done level. by, you know, Nick Nolte 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. This part, it's the opposite of showy. It is essentially a flat line. It's a flat line and whatever, you know, it, it's an it's an empty space and the character can be whoever the actor is and whatever the actor brings to it. And what he brings to it is this. Um, total subtlety, but total charisma mm-hmm. that only stars have. And there's a shot early in the movie where he, he and John Slattery are walking through the newsroom and they're like complaining about we have Schreiber, which you know I feel like happens a lot in Boston ever since <laughs> Ray Donovan premiered. And they, they, McCarthy does a lot of low shots of the newsroom, which sort of accentuate the track lighting and the low ceilings and the spotlight team is kind of buried in the basement. But they walk past the camera and these dudes are just rocking these low slung pleated doctors. Uh, pleated. With the with it's the slip on loafers, it is it is beyond normcore. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's kind of normcore that gets you a little uncomfortable and becomes a little bit abnormal. Even though I think I feel like at the end of the movie, Slattery was like, "You got to give me a sweater or something." He's like, he's like, oh. I'm I'm freaking dr- dr- dressing. I'm I'm on Mad Men for five years. You can't put me in billowy. You know, like Slattery is such a welcoming presence. I was so happy to see him on the screen. But I have to say that it, that is one example of where a char- an actor has, to my mind, become so inextricably linked to a character that I actually thought he was going to be a bad guy. Right. I thought that there was going to be a third actor. Or just, where he, he, was some he definitely of- is the, the third guy in the office who has the best lines in a meeting. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I mean, there's a couple of great Slattery moments. I did actually want to bring this up really quickly about the importance of casting in situations like this. So uh-huh. when we were leaving this, and there's just enough people... You know, there's McAdams and and Ruffalo and Keaton are obviously the sort of three stars. And then Stanley Tucci and Billy Crudup are the next sort of tier of people. Um, And then there are people like Brian James Darcy that you might recognize or um, Jamie Sheridan, uh, I think, who's been on basically every episode of every television show of all time. And they're all these great actors. But I was thinking about actually this is the 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 place where you get where you cannot possibly cast more famous people because you start to take away from the integrity of the project because if like kevin bacon is like got a walk-on role in this or if there's a reveal and it's like oh it's alec baldwin you know what i mean and and uh if if too many famous people are in a movie like this i think you start to get distracted and this is sort of something that happens in in jfk oliver stone's jfk and that's what i was thinking of as i was watching like you know, this is the kind of thing where it's like in JFK, it's like so involving and, and it's such a gripping story. But every once in a while, you're just like, is that Joe Pesci? You know, it's like and, and it is you know? <laughs> like and uh, so what you're saying is Christmas comes early. Yeah, it's but like, it's it's just a situation where I think Tom McCarthy really got the casting right, where it's like he's got a three or four people to sell this movie up top. He's got some great character actors. But after that, he's not putting Paul Dano in this thing. You know what I mean? And Paul Dano is like the the like one of the main victims or something like that like he he doesn't no. distract us with stuff like that right and so when the guy who is the and it's interesting because and it's worth googling this the guy who plays the the spokesperson for boston college who's sort of the friend of the archdiocese who has a drink with keaton near the end of the movie yeah i can't name that actor paul gilfoyle yeah paul gilfoyle he's tremendous yeah his performance is expert but on csi for like 10 years but it's because we don't recognize him too much yeah he yeah. doesn't steal the scene that it's great and it's worth reading actually that the guy that the actual person uh, who he's playing is mortified and very upset and considering legal action against the film because he sort of trends towards being a bad guy in the film and 
apparently in real life was was not that. And that's sort of an interesting wrinkle to the movie. But um, this brings us full circle back to the person we most wanted to talk about, I think, as soon as we both saw the movie, which is Crudup. Now, <laughs> Billy Crudup is one of the more amazing stories, I think, in Hollywood in the last 20 years. And he's a perfect... This is a perfect, actually, example for many things, including what you were just talking about. Because Billy Crudup was supposed to be a movie star. Yeah. Like, he's an incredibly handsome guy. He was... A, I, I'm, he was supposed to be Tom Cruise. He was supposed to be Tom Cruise, but, you know, he, like everyone else who's ever appeared in a Mission Impossible movie, was quickly <laughs> downgraded to guy guy wearing a tie who slightly befuddles Tom Cruise. House flipper, yeah. Um, but uh, Crudup actually, you know, he looks like a movie star, but he's kind of a... He's just kind of an actor's actor who kind of is better at playing pricks and creeps. And so when he shows up, you know you're going to see him again. And he just has breakfast, lunch, and dinner in his three scenes with Keaton and McAdams, right? Yeah. He's great. His performance is so good, and it's so and morally subtle. morally murky. It's like a it's very human. And he's he's fully present. And it's worth saying that Tom McCarthy, um, you know, maybe maybe one time we get the deep dives going. Just one of the more interesting directors. Deep dive on careers. the cobbler. Maybe that's the one we'll skip. But Tom McCarthy, you know, who many people know from his journalistic background as Scott Templeton, the potentially worst character in the worst season of the best <laughs> television show ever, The Wire, uh, has just been quietly making tremendous movies for 12 years now, starting with The Station Agent, which gave the world Peter Dinklage. And um, I'm a big, big, big fan of his movie The Visitor with Richard Jenkins and Win Win with um, Jamadi. And just side note for people who people maybe like some of the other shows that we talk about, you know, he directed the Game of Thrones pilot initially tom mccarthy did it's one of the weirder choices and, and it's kind of a sign that maybe hbo didn't have any idea what it had and i don't oh, know yeah. whether he got the gig because of his deep love of fantasy that has never once been expressed on screen other than the idea that adam sandler could carry a drama <laughs> um or his connection to peter dinklage but he directed the first pilot that was shot in 09 or 10 and then they reshot they recast and they reshot probably 70 percent of it no way without him to the point where he gets a consulting producer credit and Alan Taylor gets credit for directing the episode. But that would have been a very different show if, if it was, all he probably would have had a very different career if he was deeply involved in that. Yeah, very true. But also, can you imagine if like the King's landing scenes were shot in the style of spotlight? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of pullback shots of churches in the background. All right, Andy, we're going to talk about uh, Jessica Jones, but just let's take a quick break for our sponsor. Do you love books, but find that you never have time to read them? Well, Audible.com has the perfect solution. Get audiobooks and listen to those books you've been meaning to read while on the go. At the gym during your commute, Audible.com provides over 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Their app is free and works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire and over 500 MP3 players. And unlike streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your own books, so you can access the books anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone. Audible.com also has the great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange the book if you aren't happy with an, for another title, anytime, no questions asked. And just for listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial membership. Go to Audible.com and enter promo code BSPN today to start your free trial. Again, show your support for Channel 33 and go to Audible.com and enter promo code BSPN. We back! And we superheroized, Andy. Let's talk about Jessica Jones, this new Netflix Marvel show. You love it! Love it. Super into it. Um, What do you think? Uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. That's it's very enjoyable. Tone. It's very enjoyable. That, Chris, that's the tone you use when we talk about the bridge. That's, that's... <laughs> that is not the tone I used. <laughs> All you heard was tumbleweeds blowing. Um, 
I was really impressed by this. And so uh, let me just, speaking of, uh, of, of books that we like and written by friends of ours, our friend Sean Howe wrote a book called Marvel Comics, The Untold Story, uh, a year or two ago. And it's a great history of Marvel Comics. The stuff that he, it, it talks a lot about one of the more interesting times in Marvel history, which was like 99, 2000, 2001, when the company almost was, almost was bankrupt, certainly from a publishing standpoint, before any of the movies hit. And they were just like, well, I don't know, we'll just try stuff. And one of the things they tried was they let this guy, Brian Michael Bendis, make a adult-only comic book that was set in the same universe as Spider-Man and all their other characters. And that was a comic book called Alias. Okay. And it created this character of Jessica Jones, who was a former superhero, now a hard-drinking private eye who hooks up with Luke Cage on the rig. Okay. And uh, it's one of the best comics Marvel's ever published. It's really tremendous. And the character went on to like actually be influential in Marvel Comics and made an impact on what they could or couldn't do. So people who like this comic have been wondering for years how they would ever get it on TV or in movies and how they'd ever get it right. And I was really, really impressed because what the comic book did at the time that was so noteworthy is it kind of Trojan horsed a detective story about damaged people into a pre-existing thing. Yes. And I feel like this TV show has kind of done something similar. It is set, certainly set in the same world as not just as the movies, but as Daredevil, which we which we mostly liked earlier in the year. But it's also a really interesting detective drama about badly, badly damaged people, like people who have been truly hurt. And it suggests the consequences of some of these superpowers in a way that nothing to date that I've ever seen has, has even attempted to do. Right. It basically isn't interested in the fact that she can punch through walls so much as the fact that she has been essentially mind-controlled and raped by a supervillain. And that is really, really rough terrain for any story to get right. And I think Melissa Rosenberg, who, who show ran it and who... What is she wrote the Twilight adaptation and she has did. done other TV work? Yeah. Um, I thought she did an amazing job. I think Kristen Ritter is tr- tremendous. I think it's a star performance. And now I say this having watched five episodes out of 13, and 13 seems like an awful lot. Yeah. But. And I think that was the same thing with Daredevil, where it's like there's a lot of like you start off, and especially when these things get dropped on a Friday, like you're just like, yes, I'm just going to like crush some Daredevils. And there's like a couple of moments in Daredevil early on that you're like, well, I'm just going to watch all of these because this is the awesome. hallway fight. Yeah, and then it kind of gets a little bit more like this week on Daredevil. And and I think that that slows down the momentum even when you're binge-watching something. I thought this is like Kristen Ritter has always sort of been somebody who's just like a star waiting for a star star role. Um, there's an, another person who just sort of like probably had to live down the infamy of, of the Jane character, right? Like for, for a while. Yeah, but also it's a fact that, you know, every script written in Hollywood has a wisecracking, sassy girl character you know, who basically punches the lead character in the arm and yeah. is like, come on, you can do better than that, Sailor. And well, that's sort of the yeah. thought of for all of them. But this is the first one where, guess what? She's not helping some dude. She is the star. And this is a wildly, almost radically feminist drama for television. It if you watch sure the first is. episode, every male character in the first two episodes, other than Luke Cage, uh, certainly every white male character, uh, is a buffoon, essentially. Mm-hmm. And not just a buffoon but secondary or tertiary to the plot. You know, Carrie Ann Moss is the powerful attorney who is cheating on her wife with her secretary. Right. Um, all of these roles are wildly inverted from what we've got, what we've expected. And you think, you know, when the, when the girl Hope, who is sort of the linchpin of the first few episodes, when her parents come to hire Jessica, the father is just like, I'll fix your door. He's <laughs> like, I can't actually do anything or speak. I can't sit at the table with the women who are doing business. Yeah, It's pretty subversive in a way that I really, really enjoyed. But to your point about pacing, I do wonder, and I'll see how this plays out. I've heard some comments that maybe it doesn't quite pull it off. 
she went, Melissa Rosenberg went all in on this idea. She cast David Tennant as Kilgrave, who's a tremendous villain and this a really is... unsettling villain. But she also made it pretty clear by doing so early on that there is not going, there's not going to be a B-plot. There's not going to be an episode where it's just like, Jessica finds someone's cat. Once there, you've raised the stakes that high, you cannot maintain that for 13 episodes. I just don't see how you can. Well, you know, and I think that later in the season, there is some more like Jessica takes a case that could crack the larger case. But it's like a lot of like, I have, can you help me do this uh, stuff? I would say that actually the only problem I have with the show, aside from maybe just like a little bit of like exhaustion with superhero save thyself stuff, um, is is the Kilgrave character. <laughs> just because like... If, if you can control minds, isn't that like checkmate? <laughs> like, well, right, unless you get surgical drugs, which takes up like half of the, you know half so of the first for half, half of the first half of the season is like getting these surgical drugs to in- inject the homie with. But like, he's like, I, I, I know I'll learn, I'll, I'll hear all about this, and we'll, we'll find out more about it. But it's just really funny how this dude is like obsessed with Jessica Jones, and I'm just like, you could like, like be the president right now <laughs> or something like why well, are you why why are you lamping in chelsea at like at, danny at, meyer at, restaurants actually chris he was not born in the united states like some other presidents i could name and so he uh, he would just you know, convince them but he could just be like get on get on the radio and be like you guys are all listening to me now and then that would be a wrap right no apparently his powers do not translate over radio waves unlike our powers oh okay great that's right um I just think that it's a more interesting exploration. It's like what we were talking about earlier, we we're saying like you could kill a character or you could have something crazy happen to them and try and actually articulate why it was crazy. Yeah. Similarly on this show, it's sort of make it's just more interesting in comparison to a show like I mean the Flash is fine, but the Flash is like he can run real fast and so he's gonna fight superpowered gorillas and other people who can run real fast. Whereas this show it's like it's not interesting that she can jump up to a higher balcony. It's like, who is she and why is she doing it? And what are the consequences of having done it? And that's just better and more interesting drama to me. Yeah. And so I appreciate that this is a show that is actually like, or even like uh, Midnight Special saying, okay, well, let's take it one step further. Yeah. So he can command people to do things. Well, what is the consequences of people who have been commanded? You know, it's, that that in and of itself makes better drama. We can talk more about Jessica Jones a little in a couple weeks, maybe after people have had a chance to get through some of the season. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about after we've seen the end of the, the season. Um, Talking about superpowers, though, let's talk about this last episode of The Leftovers before we go. Uh, Throughback. <laughs> yeah, he was only he was only briefly gone. Uh, yeah. We we had, we did not think that Justin Theroux, that Kevin Garvey was leaving our lives so soon, and we were right because we got ourselves a a dream episode set in a Radisson, or not a dream episode, but some sort of otherworldly episode set at a Radisson. Um, very, like just. Kind of like an amazing episode, I guess. I, I don't really know what to say. I mean, it was... Here's what I want to say. I loved it. And, you know, I got a text from someone who works in television, as a who writes television, and was basically like, I don't understand how anyone could have liked that episode. It had uh, dream sequences and, like, afterlife stuff. It was, like, all the laziest storytelling cliches. Right. Um, I, I hear that. But what I thought it was, was wildly inventive and creative in the spirit of discovery and adventure in the best possible way, embracing strangeness in the most open possible way. It was often a very funny episode. Mm-hmm. It was often a very ludicrous episode. And it fully admitted she ta- that. The, and the, the, the emotional denouement of the whole episode is about Jeopardy. Exactly. Yeah. Or about pushing a child into a well. Yeah. Or, and there's a joke about Justin Theroux's dick size. Like, it's like, it's really funny. How about the fact that he becomes an international assassin? 
which is exactly the kind of thing that people would do in dreams if they could probably. Um, Everything, this has been one of the most amazing things that I've seen on TV ever, which is basically the, the complete, to my mind, 180 of the show creatively. Because the first season, I think it may not have been the seventh, or it may have been the, the equivalent episode, maybe the eighth one was the one that I wrote, I'm checked out on the show, was the one where um, Ann Dowd's character, Patty Levin, killed herself. <laughs> and that dope. episode was <laughs> the most overheated episode, right? Where it was taking, it's, it's taking all the emotions that had been on simmer to the logical, overboiled extreme. But they were quoting Yates, you know, and they were screaming and crying and pounding the ground. This episode wasn't that, right? It was as emotionally high stakes, even higher possibly, but it was basically kind of goofy and Mm -hmm. weird and haunting and disorienting and surprising. And to my mind, that is just so much more valuable. I mean, that the thing that I've always admired about the show is that it takes a question like, um, you know, what is, what, what is the dialogue actually that he says to, uh, he says to her when she's sitting on the well, um, there was this idea that, or when he says it to Patty, I'm, I'm lost in the episode. But there was a point, basically, where they were like, "If what does it mean to the world if anyone you know or love could be lost at any moment? Yeah, it's basically and, like and, there, there's family is, is basically a, a, an artificial construction. It's not even an artificial construction as much as it's like a, a, a hindrance or some sort or, of like it's or, a flaw. Like family and love are flaws. Or it's a leaky life preserver right. because you're drowning anyway. And actually, life is like that already. Like anybody could go away at any time. Like mm-hmm. That's actually what the show is grappling with. And so the way that it's doing it this season is, I find, very moving. And, and actually, I wondered if, you know, I know we joked about how, and he, I'm sure he was mostly joking, that they were trolling us with yes. that, that opening segment that was very serious. Um, that thing that, that would-be Senator or would-be President Patty Levin says to, to, to Kevin before he assassinates her <laughs> in a hotel suite is that, you know, assassinations only happen from people who are actually... Agree with sim- the people that they're assassinating. Sim- yeah, sympathetic. It's not money, it's not vengeance. It's because somebody has awoken a feeling inside of you that you're like, that is actually what I feel, and I can't handle that about myself. I can't handle that about myself. Yes. And that's probably why, in some ways, maybe that's why I hated the first season so much. You know, that there was something there that I found moving enough to be upsetting. Because my dislike of the first season was 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 kind of a hot dislike. You know what I mean? It was not a cool, dispassionate dislike. Well, I think that we we tend to watch a lot of stuff. I know I do it with movies. I know I do it with television where you're like, how does this relate to my life? How does this relate to the world that I'm experiencing? And even if it's Mad Men or even if it's Breaking Bad, you're like, well, like, what does this say about this? This needs to be rooted in our world. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that the first season of The Leftovers very was very consciously about like a post 9-11 America, about mass grief, about uh, belief and faith in an age where those things were very on shaky ground. This feels way more like a fully constructed fictional world that Damon Lindelof and his co-writers have like figured out how to make. Yes. And the rules of the world and the rules of their afterworld and the rules of their spirituality and faith and everything else is it's why the, the move to Jarden was so good. It's like, it makes sense in this environment and it is almost like a post leftover show. It's like a show that could only happen if you had done the first season and established all the rules and all the sort of stupid Holy Wayne stuff that was going yes. on, but is like a deeper and more nuanced and more re- like realistic look at that world. I agree. I, I also love to go on crazy journeys. Like Twin Peaks is my favorite show of all time. Yeah. So I will go down that road with you if I trust you as a guide. And 
you think about when you go to a, you know, we talked on Friday and I was uh, like at our favorite comedy bit. I was in an art gallery. I went to a museum <laughs> you on did. Friday. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, when you go to a museum, you know, you go to museums all the time, Chris. You're a cultured guy. Um, you just you strap on your microbial pants and just, just go. Let it breathe. And, and, you know, when you start an exhibit and like in like the first room is just the, the dude or the lady just like painting apples or their mother or like people they know right like early in their life it's like them learning the rules or whatever yeah how to paint and then the end of it is how to break it yeah yeah and that's what this episode felt like to me like it was dream logic but it was not infuriating in the way that even i found like those late sopranos episodes which felt kind of like stalling and throat clearing and just kind of like muse riffing this was the world of the show and it was embracing it it is a weird supernatural question asking show mm-hmm. and i think that some of the the fun in this episode and some of the mythological elements of it this idea that we're going that we've seen throughout the season of caves collapsing and of earthquakes and of water and this imagery virgil leading uh, him through hell as a guide yeah season one i think was resisting that whether it was because of ptsd from lost or whatever he seemed to be resisting the sort of the the potentially adventurous fun of asking these questions. And this episode was embracing it. And letting Kevin be Jack, basically. Yeah, and letting Kevin be Jack. Yeah, sideburns and all, letting Kevin be Jack. And by the way, I I would like to say that I'm sure I was not alone, but on this podcast last week, I did suggest that that, uh, uh, what's-his-name's grandson would be burying Kevin. Yes. Like and the bird in the box. Much like the bird in the, yeah, in the hotel lobby. Well, okay, so we have uh, Thanksgiving coming up, so we will be back next Monday. Yeah. Um, we'll hopefully start getting those two episodes up a week sooner and later. Uh, Andy, have a great holiday. This is going to be a big holiday for us. It's our first holiday as members of the Channel 33 family. And it feels, right. it, it, it feels good. It feels good. <laughs> I, I hope you enjoy your 33 sides. Your <laughs> All manner of cranberry sauces. Uh, I, I wanted, I, let's, since it's Thanksgiving, let's just take one second to say thank you to all of our listeners who have followed us from one podcast to another. Course. because. Your feedback and your enthusiasm has been absolutely terrific and yes, wonderful. As has been your commitment to the Great American Songbook. Which is which is just unwavering, and that matters most on Great American Holidays. And to all of you, I say, Happy Thanksgiving, Baranski! Peace! Again, we'd like to thank today's sponsor, Audible.com. They have over 180,000 audio programs from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. You can catch up on all the hot new books you've been meaning to read while on your daily commute with Audible.com. Just for listeners, Audible.com is offering a free 30-day trial of membership. Go to Audible.com and enter BSPN today to start your free trial. Today!